Hello and welcome to the monitor room at the Christian Geek Central podcast, a biblical examination and celebration of geekery and geek entertainment, as well as the official podcast of ChristianGeekCentral.com. I'm Peter Franson from Spirit Blade Productions, producing entertainment and resources to hopefully equip, encourage, and inspire Christian geeks like you and me to live in the freedom and purpose that Christ has given us. For more information about Spirit Blade Productions, you can check out SpiritBlade.com or or by checking us out at patreon.com slash spiritbladeproductions. On the show today, a review of the movie Kin, some Trek talk with Matt McKinney, and a roundup of Christian geek news items, including an interesting movement happening among authors. Here we go. Kin. Uh, the synopsis on IMDb reads, Chased by a vengeful criminal, the feds and a gang of otherworldly soldiers, a recently released ex-con and his adopted teenage brother are forced to go on the run with a weapon of mysterious origin as their only protection. Um, okay, so the, the tone, the basic, like, what is this experience going to be kind of thing, I would describe it as an urban drama with a strong injection of sci-fi. And I think if you go in with that expectation, um, you probably won't be disappointed compared to if you go in and say, oh boy, I saw some cool sci-fi in the trailer. This is going to be like a sci-fi action. Da, da, da. No, it's not that. It's largely leveraging the strengths of um, kind of just a, an, a very grounded urban drama, but peppered throughout pretty consistently, although I wouldn't say frequently, are these big moments of sci-fi tech and explosion-y things and stuff like that. Um, it's, a, it's really a movie about broken people living broken lives, dealing with the fallout of their unwise choices and the unwise choices of those that are closest to them. Uh, it's also kind of a rogues-on-the-run road trip movie. So uh, it's it's got these different elements that are kind of combining together that make it a bit unique, I think, and, and I appreciate that. The drama and the suspense come from really a street-level kind of sense of real-world dangers that the characters are uh, either avoiding or sometimes willingly heading into because of something that they want to get out of that uh, encounter. Um, and there's also tension felt because of the lies being told between characters that we know have to come out in the end, but in the meantime, we see the lies being told and everything's good in the short term as a result between these characters, but we know it's got to come out in the end. And so there's that kind of a, a tension as well in the story. There are bursts of sci-fi action and spectacle, but like I said, not frequently. And yet that lack of frequency really made those scenes more powerful to me because of how they just invaded this otherwise very grounded urban drama. You know, one thing that I appreciate about uh, you know, the way that they balance the sci-fi with the uh, with the with the real world kind of situations, as extreme as those real real world situations are 
is that, you know, if this were a kid's movie, because the movie focuses really on this 14-year-old protagonist, and if this were a kid's movie, then he would kind of be a lot more invincible, and the, the adults would all be kind of buffoons and stuff like that. But no, he's got this technology that has tremendous offensive capability, but no defensive capability. And so he is still just as vulnerable to real world gunshot wounds and stuff like that, you know? So uh, even though there's this power fantasy, which, you know, I really like sci-fi and fantasy for, there's still this real uh, tension that comes from the reality that this kid is vulnerable just like anyone else, even though he's got this really awesome uh, sci-fi weapon. Um, more than anything, it's a movie, I think, about family um, and the difficulty of, of having hard relationships or familial responsibilities that are sort of built into our lives that we can't escape and we have to deal with them. Um, I did get pulled out of the movie uh, and, and the sense of like kind of realism that I was feeling as I was watching it. During one sequence that featured a lot of police officers that that I felt like the sequence made them seem a bit inept and and made one in particular seem to lack good judgment or realistic judgment in how he responded to a request from the 14-year-old protagonist. Um, it was a brief couple of moments that just felt a just a tiny bit uh, like a slice from a kid's movie that, you know, does make the, the adults look like buffoons and the kids the capable heroes and stuff like that. It, it didn't, it wasn't a moment like where they went full on in that direction. It was just a couple moments where like the needle swerved that way in that direction just a little bit. And I was like, uh, all right, you know, and then, and then it was back to, you know, all the, the other things about the movie really firing on all cylinders dramatically and working for me. So uh, just a tiny moment there. Um, in the final scenes, it opens up a lot more in the area of science fiction happenings. And it left me with the strong impression that this is the start of a film franchise, which I wouldn't have expected, given, you know, the, the, the feel of this movie throughout as being this uh, kind of unusual urban drama with, you know, bits of, you know, well, large bits of sci-fi thrown in, you know. Uh, throughout um it's it just see yeah it's uh i don't want to say more because i don't want to imply where the direction in the series the films might go i would love to see more movies about uh some of these characters and especially if they can find a way to keep future films grounded in the family and relationship drama that this one uh, i think was really leveraging um, as far as the cast, I didn't feel like there were any weak links in the cast, so that, that was great. It was really solid to me. The story focuses on Eli Selinsky, played by newcomer Miles Truitt, um, who really felt... It seemed like he was up for the the everything that the role called for. His older ex-con brother is played by Jack Rayner, who also felt really suited to the role. And uh, But I would say that the standouts were Dennis Quaid, who brought heart in his role as um as a hardened and yet at the same time broken dad trying his best to raise his son and then also James Franco who plays the vengeful gang leader keeping the brothers on the run he's very charismatic and weird as James Franco can be when he's doing these kind of character roles so uh, I thought he was really well suited to that as far as the stunts and visuals go um, as I said the moments of spectacle aren't frequent but they really worked for me, you know, they used a combination of CGI energy effects and very practical onset uh, explosives and, and destruction and stuff like that. So I, I felt like the philosophy they used to approach the visual effects really captured and represented this invasion of otherworldly fantastical tech 
into this very real world environment, you know. And near the end, some uh, CGI actor replacement was used that did make me shrug a little bit. It's like, yeah, okay, well, we're, we're still here where they look kind of plastic, you know, when they replace actors with CGI. But my eye is cursed to notice the fakeness of CGI, so many others may not notice that at all. Um, as far as the themes in this movie, is there anything of moral, philosophical, spiritual significance going on in, in the themes of this movie that might uh, stimulate worthwhile thought or conversation between people after seeing this movie? Um, I think I think there's a good chance of that. The, the movie has a moral center and even links Christian faith to it near the beginning as we see, see clear indications that this family, at least at some point in its past maybe, maybe less so now, had a Catholic background. But And, and even so, even if it's lessened over time, they still seem to be hanging on to that faith in some form because there's a character who, as dysfunctional as he is, is still wearing a, uh, a crucifix around his neck. Um, there's also a crucifix hanging on the wall that was zoomed in on, uh, I think, in very intense intentionally um, in a scene in the dining room. So I, I think that uh, that at the very least they're trying to portray that uh, whatever their beliefs currently are, this is a family that in its inception really had some absolute morals that were providing the foundation for what they wanted their family to be. Um, the foolishness and short-sighted immorality of the ex-con brother is almost constantly an implied subject, I think. He is uh, suffering in this movie from many years of bad choices and the consequences of those and, and is now bringing those consequences onto his family as collateral damage. Uh, and a moment near the end of the movie clearly upholds the importance of making the right choices even though they are usually the hard choices. Now I am a little bummed at the inconsistency of how morality was upheld in one scene. Um, the characters are in a PG-13 strip club. Uh, I call it that because there's no actual nudity. I don't know if it's like non-nude strip clubs quote-unquote actually exist but uh, I assume they don't and then that's a little kind of a you know a lack of realism here. Um, anyway the script seems to clearly, I'm going to circle back around to that in a second, the script seems to clearly communicate that at the very least this strip club is no place for a 14 year old to be and it also seems to imply that women are objectified in this profession they can even be victimized in this profession um, so it seemed to be making moral commentary about the objectification of women and yet the camera has no qualms about giving full attention to and focusing in on the body of a dancer's routine um, this kind of scene can be easily shot without objectifying the actress on set and in theaters and homes across the world. Um, in fact, circling back to uh, to the, the uh, absence of nudity in the scene, um, which don't get me wrong, I'm saying good. I don't want to see you know that on on screen. Um, I can think, though, of how to shoot that scene so that the dancers on stage as characters are understood to be nude um, and therefore lending itself to realism a little more, I think, without actually showing a hint of nudity at all. You can you can do things with the camera that make it clear, okay, they're looking at a naked woman without ever showing anything with hardly showing that woman at all. Um, nudity and sexuality can easily be subjects in a story without asking actors to be nude on set or skimpily dressed on set um, or uh, sexually objectify themselves to anyone. Um, but even filmmakers promoting messages against female objectification still seem to fall into these objectifying habits, sometimes in the same breath that they, they want to speak against them. So I'm at a loss. I don't get it. I don't know if it's because they're uh, too 
too desensitized to it and don't even see what's going on right in front of them, I, I really am at a loss. Um, setting that scene aside, however, the themes of family and moral responsibility were a strong part, I, I felt, of the emotional core of this movie um, that, I, that I really appreciated. Now, I have no idea what your taste in, in movies are, but if I were a time traveler, I'd go back in time and say, Peter, um... Dude, see if you can see this one with Holly in theaters. This might be one that she would appreciate. Uh, or at least plan to insta-buy on Blu-ray. This is a close second for you. Second only to upgrade uh, as a competition for your movie of the year. This was really enjoyable. You're really gonna... This is your type of movie, Pater. Uh, it's rated PG-13 for gun violence and intense action, suggestive material, language, thematic elements, and drinking. I want to remind you guys to check out the other members of the Christian Geek Central Network, such as the Strangers and Aliens podcast, the Theology Gaming podcast, the Untold podcast, POSTOS, Helix Reviews, and the Retro Rewind podcast. For more information about the CGC Network, visit ChristianGeekCentral.com. Captain Branson to Ensign McCarthy. Ensign McCarthy. McCarthy. Sorry, sorry, I couldn't hear you over the sound of you going down with the ship. Hey, uh, nobody up here right now. I'm looking at my uh, console here. It looks like everybody's kind of clustering around the escape vessels. Could you round them all back up and uh, get them back to their, their posts? <laughs> Knew I could count on you. You're the best. <sighs> Star Trek Discovery. The first new Star Trek on TV in a decade ever since the massive failure that was Enterprise. And I gotta say... I think this is also a massive failure. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna have to agree with you. Uh, let me explain to you guys kind of how we came on this show. Because we tried it out at first, and we didn't much care for the premiere. And we gave Discovery a chance, even though it kept getting worse and worse, until episode six. Episode six, Lefe broke us. And we said, this is crap and we won't take any more of it but then we kept hearing from other fans around the internet oh it gets better it gets better and so we eventually so we found back, the time and looked at it again and it did get better and then it got worse again and the thing is this show is not completely terrible but then i would say that about enterprise it's not a complete loss but like enterprise like the star wars prequels for every good step they take, there's about five or six bad steps they take. And we have three major errors that this show, in our opinion, makes. Most of the errors will fit in one of these three categories. I'll say first, the Klingon redesign. Now, they redesigned a lot of these things. This feels more like a reboot, even though they say it's in the classic, quote-unquote, prime continuity. But this feels like the reboot. But the reboot had already redesigned the Klingons. This is actually the fourth time the Klingons have been designed. The third redesign, this was not at all the Klingons. They're purple and blue and hairless and chitiny. They look insectile. Their language is slow and clumsy. Compare and contrast. One of those sounded like a language, one of those sounded like a car dying. Now, I suspect that part of the reason why the Klingon language in Discovery is so halting and chunky is because of the horrible prosthetics their actors 
are required to deliver their lines through. Way too much up in their mouth. And that's just more reason why they should not have done this redesign. There is no reason for it. The Klingons are an iconic thing. And the thing is, they're the enemies throughout most of this season. But they didn't have to be Klingons. There's nothing about these aliens that had to be Klingon. They could have been a brand new race. There have been some races mentioned in Star Trek. I think of the Zenkethi in Deep Space Nine. We never see them. We have no idea what they look like. The Klingons themselves had a race called the Herc. That's the Klingon word for outsiders, isn't it? Yes. The Herc invaded our homeworld over 1,000 years ago. We have never seen what they look like. We have no idea. You could have introduced that and it fit into the continuity, which leads into the second flaw of this show, which is... Well, uh, the second thing is them making it a prequel at all, I think. Yes, after Enterprise failed so badly, they took everything risky about Enterprise and made it more risky. Instead of being a century before Kirk, it's a decade before Kirk. Most of the characters of Kirk's Enterprise are alive and allegedly part of Starfleet, or at least at the Academy, by this point in time. Spock's parents are in this. They are minor characters who appear in a couple episodes. Yes, sadly all too connected because... Go ahead, Kim. Because the main character of Discovery, we are told, I think in like the third episode, is the adopted daughter of Sarek and thus the adoptive sister of Spock. Despite the fact that we have never, never heard of her before, even though Spock has gone into great detail about his upbringing, even though we've had a character mind meld with Sarek and experience most of his life and regrets and problems, no mention of this extra child of his. We've seen the animated episode which went to Spock's childhood yes. in time travel, and there was not neither, neither a young girl there nor any mention of a young girl there. Here's the most frustrating thing. Her being raised by a Vulcan is part of her character, that she is trying to find some sort of emotional balance. But there's no reason for it to be Sarek. The only exactly. reason that it's Sarek is because the fans know who Sarek is. And this is something that I see in a lot of recent reboots or adaptations of something. Hollywood wants the fan base of the thing that they're rebooting or adapting. They want that built-in butts in seats, fan base enthusiasm. But they don't want to pay the cost of that in respecting the continuity and respecting the original intent. And they'll do these things like, oh hey, you know who Sarek is, so we'll use him, and then not understand why fans are mad because they just peed all over continuity and common sense. Especially when by the end of the season, Sarek has willingly helped to take part in an attempt to destroy an alien planet. And yet Which is so not that man. And yet, in the future, he'll be snarky with his son for serving aboard a ship that has the audacity to have weapons. So, okay, and to use a non-Star Trek parallel for those who don't know Star Trek, let's use Farscape. Farscape is a story of John Crichton, a human, who accidentally finds himself on the other side of the galaxy, trapped among aliens he's never seen before. That's pretty much the definition of the show. What if you were to do a prequel to Farscape where we find out that John Crichton had had several dreams and visionary contact with the aliens he would eventually call friends before he ever left Earth and that he knew he was going to go out there and meet them. On one hand, you can say, well, those events still happen. But on the other hand, the whole point is that he was caught up in learning these things. So you destroy the very intention of the original series you love just so you can make a pointless connection, like having Darth Vader build C-3PO. It does no good and it does harm. 
You don't need to do that. Well, and they keep doing things. When they originally advertised the Discovery series, they kept swearing, it's in the original continuity, guys. It's not like the movies where it's the reboot continuity, Kirk and Spock and all them are on a different trajectory. They kept swearing, this is original continuity Trek. We promise, we promise, we promise. And then they kept doing things that... We're throwing egg all over the face no of the original sense. continuity. If this is supposed to be original continuity Star Trek, that just flew in the face of that. How about a massive war with the Klingons that's never been talked about before? How about we've got a system of transport? This is a major component of oh, the yeah. show. Oh, yeah, this is like the definition of the show here. A major component of the show is that they have a special engine aboard the USS Discovery. Uh, it runs on fungus. Yes. Magical quantum fungus, of course. Magical quantum fungus. There is a magical quantum fungus among us. And we we ride through the groove waves of fungus of the universe, and it enables us to instantly teleport our ship anywhere that we want to be, but it requires us to inject a person with get-you-high fungus. Or or we can use the magic space whale. It's so stupid. It is unbelievably stupid. It's profoundly stupid. And... You're trying to tell me that 10 years before Kirk, we had this amazing ship-sized transporter technology, and we've never heard of it again. We've never used it again. In all the emergencies we've had where a ship could make all the difference if it got there, and they had to race to get there. Lives were lost, all because we didn't use our mushroom drive. Because we didn't push the fungus button. It's one of those things, again, it's not needed. And here's what would have solved the problem. Don't make this a prequel series. Make this a sequel series. Set it after the ends of Voyager and Nemesis. You can make it a century ahead of time. You don't have to have any cameos from established characters. But simply have it set after that. Then all these changes can be acceptable. Because, oh, well, it's a, it's a different time. We don't know what's ahead of us now. Yeah. But the problem is if they did that, they couldn't have Sarek make cameos. They couldn't mention Christopher Pike. They, 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 they couldn't do these weak things that, again, it's not needed to accomplish this goal. I would say the third problem, third Ar- major problem... Arguably the worst problem, especially we just watched the finale, and the finale really pushed this too far. Our main character, uh, her name is Michael Burnham. Yes, it, her name is Michael, even though she is a woman. And they're not trying to make any weird gender identity hay out of it. She's just got an unusual name. And that's the least of her problems. If that was a problem, I wouldn't bat an eye. But she is... Bella Swan. She is Mary Sued all to get out. Even though, even though the story begins with her making a major mistake, it's still her mistake sets the entire galaxy at war. And then the rest of the show is constantly every character talking about how special Michael Burnham is, how amazing she is, how her faith in humanity... Her ethics, her will, her intelligence drives everything. She's such a special person. Villains are obsessed with possessing her. Good guys are obsessed with impressing her. And and the end of the show had many of the characters who had gone through all their struggles receiving well-earned promotions. And first, we had Michael Burnham give a big speech that was just a bunch of repetitive things about we need to do what's right. And then, as each one got their promotion... We cut to Michael saying, yes, that is Starfleet. Today we honor Ensign Sylvia Tilly, accepted into Starfleet Command Training Program. Yes, that is Starfleet. Lieutenant Commander Paul Stamets, 
Medical officer, Hugh Calder. Yes, that is who we are. And Matt and I were sitting there going, what is with this editing style? Is she actually approving their promotions formally? Is this, is this being cut together or is this in real time? Is she actually approving each of their promotions, like you said? Many of these people were above her in rank anyway. Either way, why would you do it this way? And that's so much of Discovery. So much of Discovery is you look at it and you say... Bad fanfic. Why would you choose to do it that way? Because the parts of this story that are good, and there are some, do not... It's not like the bad stuff is the price of getting the good stuff. They made a bunch of bad decisions, then they made some good ones, then they made a whole bunch of bad ones. I can understand sometimes when you have a story where you need to get your characters to a specific place, so you have them make one or two dumb decisions in order to set them up for that act two. That's not this. They just make a bunch of dumb act one decisions, have a pretty decent act two, and then just completely flub act Well, three. yeah, and it's because it's the it's supposed to be the end of a major war, and I won't spoil anything for you, but I will say it's a very disappointing non-ending. I mean, they wrap everything up so neat and clean in a matter of minutes. The, the best part of this, unfortunately, you can't just start at episode 7, which is where I would say it starts getting good, and go through episode 12, which is where I would say it stops getting good. Yeah. Unfortunately, you can't do that because it is, it is heavily serialized, and yes. you need episodes 1 through 6 to understand what's going on in episode 7. Because and of I that, don't th I honestly do not think that the middle part merits sitting because through of that, the first don't. That. I don't think it's worth your time. Yeah. I would not recommend that you slog through this unless if you are either A, especially interested in a what not to write lesson, or B, perhaps you want something to MST3K. Even that, I would quite... Well, we had some fun making jokes about it, certainly, <laughs> but I, I think a lot... It, it does take itself very seriously... Like it much, is. like a lot of Trek does, a lot of good Trek and bad Trek does that. Well, and it does. It, there are a few moments where I turned to Matt and kind of like poked him in the ribs with the remote, and I'm like, "Hey, are you getting it? We, we've got a message for you. You get Do you the subtlety. Do you get it? Like, there's one point where they talk about how some some planet has overused its resources of whatever, and that they've run out. And they thought they could replenish them in time. Those short-sighted fools. Did and they think this would last forever? The character almost turns to the camera and says that. And we're like, we get it, Star Trek. Oil we is bad. We get it. You've been hitting it's, us with the hammer of morality just, for 60 years. It has a lot of the worst aspects of the worst parts of Star Trek. And it does have some good, but I compare it to Deep Space Nine, which obviously you know if you've been following these, I love to death. And the worst of Deep Space Nine holds up with at least the mediocre of most of the other Star Trek series, I would say, with few exceptions. And one of the best things is Deep Space Nine is full of consequences. This show has little to no consequences. Even when something lasts and they don't hit a reset button on it, which I will say we expected a reset button at the end, but it, it still feels like a reset button because all the damage that was done just gets undone in the day. Well, and they just say, well, we fixed that. There are a few permanent deaths. I will say that. You do, you do not know going in who's going to survive. However, I will say that the characters who die tend to be either characters that 
you, the viewer, probably won't like. Or characters that you get very little of. There's one character who dies, and it's painful, but it's not painful because you, the viewer, know that character. You're just sympathetic. It's painful because you care for the character who loves them. Yes. It, it would be like if someone that you knew lost their parent. Well, the loss of the parent doesn't actually hurt you, but it hurts you to know that your friend is but hurting. But you empathize with exactly. your friend. And that will lead me into one of the things I think is very good. This is a very well-acted show. The only performances I would say are weak were the Klingons. I question whether the problem with those Klingon performances is the actors or whether it is a combination of the horrible prosthetics they have to act through and or the direction they yeah, are given. And, and bad dialogue coaching. Yeah. Yeah, I agree because that's my point is those actors, when they were allowed to speak English... They spoke like actors. Yes. So it really feels like more they were just encased in something. Yeah, I don't I don't feel like there's any blame to be put on the actors for the badness of the show. It's all on the writing team. Yeah, it's it's got some very bad writing, very contrived. Effects plot are good, twists. effects are beautiful. If you like the if you like the reboot style. I am not a fan of the reboot style as much as the classic. Things like we shoot Quick little bursts of blasts of energy, mm -hmm. super fast, almost like a minigun, rather than a sustained beam. Um, when we fly to warp, we basically vanish into warp. Those little, those little details. It's a matter here, of taste. There's nothing in here that looks bad. There's yeah. no, there's no hideous Cardassian vol cheap props. Except I would say still the Klingon redesign. It, it does look bad. Not only because it doesn't look like Klingon, but because it's bulky and slow. And these are supposed to be agile, ferocious warriors, and they they all they almost move like cyclos from Battlefield Earth. Yeah. And it feels like you're dealing with cyclos, and the Klingons should not be like cyclos. While you were still learning how to spell your name, I was being trained to conquer galaxies. Not much else to say. Um, one thing that Christians might find objectionable. There is a homosexual couple in this show. And what I find astounding is this is well done. I, I would agree. I was actually pleasantly it, surprised. It never, feels, it never feels like they're preaching a hammering a blow. Um, I think of a counter is Supergirl. They brought in a gay character. And whenever that gay character revealed that she was gay, everyone got very defensive. They say, what, are you going to say something? And they look right at the camera and say, I dare you. Yeah. And it got very intrusive, and it ruined the plot. But in this one, they're simply two men who love each other. And even if you believe that's sin, it's still something you can easily overlook because you believe that these two they're, men love each not, other. They're not making any hay out of it. They're not doing the turn to the audience and, oh, wow, imagine the ignorant people who aren't into it. The, they're not doing that. No. It's just... And that, if you're going to present anything, that's the way to present it. And in fact, I would say, until a certain point, they don't rub the fact that these two are lovers in your face. There's a point where they kiss, but up until that point, it's clear that they care very much for each other, but you could potentially read it as a familial relationship or, you know, something like that, that they're they're real close, they're, they're blood bros or whatever, until that kiss, and they're like, now, we knew they were gay lovers because of the... Behind the scenes, no, you yeah, know, osmosis. Yeah, because behind no. the scenes, osmosis. But if I hadn't known, I'm not sure I would have been certain that was what their relationship was. Because, it's like I said, it's clear that they're very close. It's clear that they're roommates. But I'm not sure I would have necessarily put together the romantic partners. And I would say overall, 
it really doesn't matter either, which yeah. is the way, again, it should be done. But, and that way, for those who don't approve, it's an easy thing to overlook. For those who do approve, it's natural. It works either way. And I would say, honestly, this is not a bad show. This is a bad Star Trek show. If this had been a standalone show that just changed a few of its details, I think it not only would it be a, a better received show, but I would probably be getting behind it, saying this is a good show. It reminds me of Star Trek in many ways, now, without being mired to its continuity. I'm going to disagree with you just a tiny bit here. I think that even if this were not calling itself Star Trek, it would be a better show. But I'm still not sure it would rise too far above average for me, because I feel like that third act really blew yeah, a lot but, of the potential they had built. Yeah, it was all about how amazing Michael was, and you're right, that's bad writing. And I feel like they waste a lot of time on things that are not... Yes, they do. ...interesting. In that sense, it feels like Revenge of the Sith, where they spent the first half kind of, you know, twiddling around, taking their time, making jokes, and then suddenly we have to rush a whole movie's worth of events into the last third of the movie. Mm-hmm. And so everything just flies, 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 you don't have time, and you can't absorb what's supposed to be very important, crucial moments. Instead, they have to just pound, 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 pound. And that's what this feels like. So, and so I agree with you. I think it would be better if it weren't trying to call itself Star Trek. That might raise my rating of it as much as two or three points. But I still wouldn't say it's a great, gotta see it show either and, way. And definitely, if you're, if you're a fan of Star Trek and the Star Trek lore, definitely skip it because this does far more harm than any it does not add anything of value to star trek it, yeah if you love and old it takes star a lot trek, away this will hurt your soul enterprise had a lot of flaws and was a very weak show i think this is worse for star trek than enterprise was and i don't say that lightly i don't say that just to just to sensationalize it but as a hardcore star trek fan this is the first show well no because I would say avoid Enterprise, but I would say avoid this one even more than Enterprise. We'll see where they go. They are going to have season two. Well, and part of it is that with Enterprise, Enterprise is less serialized. So you can at least say, here are some great episodes of Enterprise that you can check out. Yeah, there's no really good standalone episodes yeah, there's, here. There's nothing in Discovery that you can say, oh, well, the show isn't very good, but this episode or this arc is salvageable. It, it's too serialized, it's too integrated. So, yeah, there's not much more to say other than reiterating the same points. I can talk about how they abused Harry Mudd. I can talk about how they, they don't understand any aspect of the Klingon ethos. I can ethos. talk about how they don't know what the word logic means. Yes, there, there's, there are subplots about the Vulcans and things going on in their home planet that they must be saving for the next season, so why introduce them now? The, they, they push all sorts of boundaries... And it feels like what they're doing with the new Star Wars movies where now all of a sudden these people can do things across the stars and it just feels like they're getting out of control and ridiculous just for the sake of being bigger than the last thing. A prequel shouldn't need to try to be bigger than the last thing because there's going to be something bigger to come later. Mm -hmm. Let me give you an example of what I think is one of the best prequels. Monsters University. If you've seen Monsters Inc. and haven't seen Monsters University, you're missing a good prequel. And here's why. That prequel did not stomp all over the message of the, the original movie Monsters, Inc. Instead, what it did was it added details that make watching Monsters, Inc. better. Such as Mike, Michael and Sully, they work their way up from the mailroom instead of taking the easy way by graduating from the university. And so by doing that, we understand when we see in Monsters, Inc. when they're getting along with everyone, they're not just a bunch of suck-ups who make friends everywhere. They have worked with all these guys at some point in their career. 
and that they know and value everyone, it makes them look better as characters, makes more sense, it may, you understand why everyone's rooting for these two guys over the other monsters, it, it makes it a better show just by adding details. That's what a good prequel does, and that's what Discovery does not do. That's about all for now. Uh, pardon me for having gone on so long, but this is Matt McKinney and... Off-screen Kim. Signing off for now. Data collection complete. Activating Usenet 1.0. Tim O'Donnell, the general administrator for Christian Geek Central, and I are doing some planning for the future and are interested in doing some kind of collaboration with other Christian content, uh, Christian geek content creators. Uh, naturally, I hope to do some things with those in our own uh, CGC network that haven't been on the show much before, but I also want to hear from you guys. Uh, so what other Christian geek-oriented communities, sites, or individual creators do you enjoy? I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me at P-A-E-T at spiritblade.com. Also, there's a ton of content rolling out all the time from Christian Geek Central, movie and video game reviews, an ongoing in-depth Bible study with specific geek application, Christian geek industry news, gaming live streams, this podcast, of course, and a bunch more. For as little as $1 a month, you can help make sure that all that content keeps going and growing in the future, and also get yourself some exclusive content as well, depending on your level of support, an exclusive podcast, private live streams, and an influential voice in all that I'm creating are just some of the rewards that you can find out about. You can learn more about all of them and the exclusive content for uh, patrons by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash spiritbladeproductions. Let's see, is that all I wanted to cover? Oh, no, no, no. Uh, at youtube.com slash Christian Geek Central, you can find uh, the video version of, of the Christian Geek News Radar segment that I'm featuring in this episode of the podcast. Uh, so you can see all the video that goes along with that. And there are some visuals that uh, are, are a little extra relevant, especially when I'm talking about, like, say, the, uh, the, uh, the Batman comic story. Um, so anyway, you can check that out at youtube.com slash Christian Geek Central. I also posted there part six of my not too long ago backlog burn live stream uh the final hour is what's uh, in part six and i was playing assassin's creed origins talking about that game the assassin's creed series as a whole um and some of the more interesting facets of how they play fast and loose with history and in particular the history of jesus um and then there's just a bunch of general nonsense as i was totally having a blast goofing off and talking with you guys a lot of fun a lot of fun so you can check that out on the youtube channel as well as by now you should be able to find my uncut video review of the movie kin uh so all of that on our youtube channel youtube.com youtube dot youtube.com slash christian geek central and while you're there if uh, you'd be willing to like share subscribe uh i'd be very grateful for that and uh, if you want to keep track of the content click that notification bell and if youtube gets back on the ball as i hear they've really dropped it lately you will be notified <laughs> when a new video uh comes out on that channel um let's see here oh okay finally mark your calendar for november 3rd and then take a listen to this november 3rd november 3rd dragon quest 11 and spider-man for ps4 are coming out within three days of each other i'm gonna try and review both games i don't have time to make a brand new extra life recruitment bumper
November 3rd. Once again this year, Christian Geek Central is participating in Extra Life. Uh, this is a charity that raises funds for the Children's Miracle Network of Hospitals, which provides free medical care to children whose families could otherwise not afford it. And this is very often for critical, life-saving treatment. Joining our team only requires a willingness to ask your family and friends to consider donating toward your fundraising efforts. Participants also usually do something fun and game-related to draw attention to their fundraising efforts, like a, a special game night at your home or your church, or like me, you could do a crazy 24-hour video gaming marathon. Now, I'm theming it around video games, but really this, this event can be themed around any kind of gaming, which includes both video games and tabletop games of any kind. What you do to raise funds is entirely up to you, but I would love for you to consider joining the Christian Geek Central Extra Life team. Uh, as team leader, I'll be there to help answer your questions, provide some helpful tips if I can, and just in general be your fundraising cheerleader and try to draw attention myself to your fundraising efforts. You can get more information about the event as a whole at extra-life.org uh, and if you choose to sign up there be sure to select Christian Geek Central as your team so I can get in touch with you and then just help in whatever way I can. Fundraising can begin at any time but our main push is going to be through the month of October leading up to November 3rd. Uh, that's the annual Extra Life game day uh, when I'll be streaming my 24-hour video gaming marathon live and trying to stay awake without throwing up. More details on my live stream as we get closer to it. Uh, that's it for now. Thanks for watching. Bye-bye. Scanning for Christian Geeks. Subject located. Verifying status. Christian Geek status verified. Begin data transmission. Covering the months of July and August, there were a few interesting things that came about. First, though, in local news, I wanted to let you guys know that Spirit Blade Productions and Christian Geek Central have launched a Patreon where you can get some goodies uh, for supporting us at a number of different tier levels, starting as low as a dollar. Uh, you can get more information about that over at patreon.com slash Productions. This coming Friday, I'm going to be hosting a live stream featuring some of my all-time favorite video games. This, is the, this will be the second year in a row I've done it. Uh, some new games have been added to that list since last year. Actually, two, which I, I didn't imagine I'd be adding more than one per year at, at most to this list. But two games, I can officially say, have come in become my all-time, a part of my all-time favorites list. So anyway, that's going to be on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Central this Friday, August 31st, uh, starting at 5 p.m. Pacific time. So I hope you'll tune in and uh, enjoy that. Uh, now branching out a little bit to the Christian Geek Central Network, the Theology Gaming Podcast is one of the shows on that network. It's a great conversational podcast about video games and uh, uh, some of the issues of faith that can either come about playing video games or actually in the games themselves and uh, it's, it's a great show they took a hiatus for about a year and have still in that time had a really active Facebook group that I've been known to pop over and join in conversation in myself uh, so they've got great stuff going on there but they recently announced that they are rebooting the podcast getting things uh, back into gear again and so I wanted to be sure and highlight that so that you guys knew that a new 
episode of the Theology Gaming Podcast went up on August 3rd, 2018, where they talk about why they were gone and uh, uh, what uh, the, the renewed focus of the Facebook group is going to be and, uh, you know, and their, and their plans a bit for, for going forward. So uh, you can get more info, more info on that at theologygaming.com. And of course, uh, all the members of the Christian Geek Central Network, you can get more information about at christiangeekcentral.com. Uh, all right, moving on now. Comic book author J.S. Earls is has an Indiegogo campaign going right now for about 12 days left uh, for a book called The Cry, which is an anti-child abuse horror comic. This, the subtitle description for it on Indiegogo is a hauntingly written, beautifully illustrated comic book thriller. Uh, J.S. Earls really puts out quality stuff. I interviewed him years ago. Uh, well, first, let's go down here. and um, He's really teamed up with uh, a great uh, artist. Got some real cool... It's, it looks like a very dark... The sample art on the Indiegogo, Indiegogo page uh, looks like a very dark kind of color palette. Uh, very serious subject matter uh, and it just looks like it's really being done with excellence so uh, if you want to check that out uh, before I forget you can go to indiegogo.com and in the search field just enter the cry horror comic the cry horror comic and it'll come up right there in the search results and uh, you can check it out for yourself um the on the bottom of the indiegogo page uh, they mentioned that let's see where is this for every two dollars that are raised by the indiegogo campaign one dollar will fund the comics production and printing and one dollar will be donated donated to protect.org so anyway for more information go to indiegogo.com and search for the cry horror comic um if you want to hear more from J.S. Earls, learn a, bit, a little bit more about him as a writer. Uh, in the archives uh, of this podcast, number 46 of what was at, at that time called the Spirit Blade Underground podcast, that's part one of my interview with J.S. Earls talking about his, at that time, upcoming series Pistol Fist, um, which is a really cool book, really well done also. Uh, so that's a two-part interview starting in episode 46. If you don't see the Christian Geek Central archives in like iTunes going all the way back that far. Um, I'm not sure what iTunes is going to do with those older archives when they uh, have a different title for the podcast. But you can always go over and find episodes 0 through 500 of the Christian Geek Central podcast at spiritblade.com. And again, that J.S. Earl's interview part one is episode 46 over at uh, spiritblade.com. Uh, let's see here. Moving along, if you're interested in... Um, authors in general who write Christian geek fiction, uh, then you might have heard of Realm Makers. This is an organization that has been known historically for really helping Christian authors uh, kind of get their books out there, get connected to uh, to publishers and things like that, but it's really had a, a, a Christian-branded focus, and recently I heard through the grapevine that they were kind of shifting their focus to explore a little bit more um, being about the general market as well as Christian authors, and so I wasn't sure. I, I reached out to them to kind of get an official statement on what, it, you know, what their plans were because um, I had also, along with that news, heard that Brent Weeks is going to be the keynote speaker uh, for the Realm Makers Conference in 2019. For those not familiar, Brent Weeks is a New York Times best-selling fantasy author who wrote the Night Angel trilogy and is currently my favorite 
fantasy author of all time. I had an interview with him that I really enjoyed. You can find that on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Christian Geek Central. Just type in Brent Weeks uh, and it'll pop up. And uh, it was really insightful to get uh, some perspective on where he was coming from as a believer. It was actually in that interview that he kind of um, revealed in the context of his public career, uh, his faith in Christ. He hadn't done that before. And uh, so him opening up about that, talking about some of those uh, dark moments where he was like, what am I going to do with this book? I've got all these dark themes and I've got characters dropping F-bombs all over the place. You know, this it's not going to work with a Christian publisher, but yet, you know, he has these rich biblical themes on almost every page. And so, you know, as I was reading it, I was wondering, wow, how did this, you know, how did a mainstream publisher, how were they just fine with this? I was a little bit surprised. And uh, so anyway, that's a, a, a fascinating conversation that I was able to have with him. And I think he'll make a wonderful keynote speaker for Realm Makers. And I think it's also possibly an indication of kind of maybe where they're going and what kinds of things they would like to help authors accomplish. Um, I reached out to them and Rebecca Miner got back to me with uh, an official statement about the direction of Realm Makers going forward. She says, uh, and Rebecca Miner is the executive director of Realm Makers, by the way. Uh, she wrote, in terms of Realm Makers direction, it has become increasingly clear to us over the past several years that if all the great stories of our community, that if all the great story, stories, excuse me, our community is writing are going to find publication homes, we will need to forge paths in both Christian publishing and the general market, as well as equip independent publishers. To that end, we have been working to build inroads to the general market as well as expand our reach within the CBA. We hope to establish ourselves as a bridge to whatever publishing landscape works best for our authors, who remain primarily Christians who write speculative fiction. We were excited to have Rowena Kuo of Tor Books with us this past year, which helped us toward our goal. Several of the agents who have attended Realm Makers over the past couple years also have track records of selling into both markets. We will continue to develop relationships with publishing professionals across the markets as we interact with them at book selling and conference events. We're looking forward to helping our authors discover their publishing paths and facilitate those journeys. So I thought that was really interesting news. Um, and I, I, I'm encouraged by it. You know, I think that there can be a couple of different responses we can have when we hear that something that's known to be uh, branded as Christian starts to go mainstream. You know, there, there can be maybe among some people a tendency to say, oh, well, they're like they're selling out uh, or they're, you know, watering down their faith. They're not really serious about their faith anymore and stuff like that. And I really don't think that's what's going on here. Uh, I think that um, that there's absolutely... Um, worth in creating content specifically for a Christian market. Obviously, I believe that. I've got this entity called Christian Geek Central. The audio dramas I produce over at spiritblade.com are primarily directed at a Christian audience, even though a number of people have told me they have appeal for uh, non-Christians as well. Um, so I, I absolutely think that uh, it's valuable to have uh, authors and creative types that are focusing on that. I also think it's really important that Christians be engaged in mainstream creative culture, doing things there and in perhaps more subtle ways, but still uncompromising ways, uh, bringing their faith, their beliefs 
into what they create and allowing that to have some degree in either a subtle or more open ways have some degree of influence on the people who are reading it um, who perhaps wouldn't you know be offended by it and you know if the creators are careful they're avoiding being preachy they can say something of worth that will be received by someone reading a mainstream uh, book or watching a mainstream movie or whatever it is who would otherwise you know not engage in something that specifically has the brand of Christian on it so I think that this is uh, uh, this could be a really uh, wonderful thing and bring about all kinds of possibilities I, so I'll be excited to keep my eyes on Realm Makers uh, going into the future and uh, especially next year. Um, I've been, there's some folks at uh, at Realm Makers and some that go to Realm Makers that have been, that have for a couple years have said, Pater, when are you going to come to one of these conferences? It'd be great to have you there and stuff. And uh, it's, I, I don't think I can justify it in my budget, but um, there may be a way I could justify it next year. I, I know someone who uh, is uh, potentially entering into that space of being a Christian writing uh, fantastical fiction um, for the mainstream market. And since Realm Makers is going in this direction, maybe I'll have a conversation with them and we can, I don't know, split the gas money. I don't know. We'll see. If I had, if I, if I didn't, didn't have uh, uh, as much motive before, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Brent Weeks, so that's a little extra motive for me to go check out the Realm Makers conference in 2019. All right, moving on uh, to more items. Uh, I got an email not long ago. I want to say uh, maybe it was end of July or early August, uh, letting me know that about some fundraising that's being done for the Pilgrim's Progress animated movie. And this was actually the first that I'd heard about this. This is going to be heading into theaters, if all goes well, in the, uh, let's see, I think they said next summer? I'm not sure when they... Oh, no, let's see here. They, they're they looking to be finished in the summer of 2018, and the... the uh, so the, presumably it's a finished product now. The email that I got was uh, talking about them working on getting distribution in theaters, and so they're uh, looking for some help funding to, to kind of make that happen. And uh, I was really interested in this project because, as some of you know, I had been on a path to reimagine... The Pilgrim's Progress as a fantasy audio drama series with swords and dragons and magic weapons and you know and uh, you know mystical goings on and, and all that kind of stuff that really uh, wasn't in Bunyan's original work but that I thought would be cool for uh, for geek audiences and what uh, what you may not know that I announced a, a few months ago is that that's no longer I'm canceling that series. What I found with that project in particular, uh, as I read and reread The Pilgrim's Progress in the process of adapting it, I just found some doctrinal things, some theological things that I was like, you know, I could shape this and I could change it. I just disagreed with uh, Bunyan's stance theologically on a few issues. He had a tendency to at least come across, if not actually believe in his heart, to come across as, as uh, preaching a form of legalism, a form of works-based uh, justification, which uh, is something that I wholeheartedly disagree as, uh, as something that is actually taught from Scripture. So I didn't want to perpetuate that kind of thing by just doing a direct retread of Bunyan's um, teaching there. But I felt at, at some point that, you know, 
I, I would be creating something that's so different from the original work that it would be hard to justify naming it this, you know, Pilgrim's Progress in any form. So, uh, so I, you know, put that project down. I moved on to the Storyteller series, which is going to be an adaptation of uh, books of the Bible brought to life dramatically with cinematic sound effects and stuff like that. For more information, uh, you can check out. Uh, I put a trailer up a while back, kind of a preview thing at SpiritBlade.com on our on our uh, news page, and I hope to move forward with that with the help of patrons again at patreon.com slash spirit blade productions but circling back to this pilgrim's progress project i'm very interested to see how this turns out and what they decide to do with that material they do have a trailer on there but i would say it's less of a trailer and more of a kind of like a a, a series of clips about the making of and what, what the current state of it maybe is it doesn't have the kind of drama and flow of a trailer and it's got a lot of behind the scenes footage as well about the making of so it's more like here are some clips of things and and our you know the vibe we're giving to this classic story it's clear even from the clips that they are very much rewriting the story it's a it's an entirely new script they're keeping the name of at least one or two characters from the original book but that it's this the script is totally different so i'm wondering how much they're going to have in common and how much they're going to depart from the theology uh of bunyan's original work so um, I, I keep wanting to say uh, Paul Bunyan. It's John Bunyan. That's why I've just been saying Bunyan this whole time. It's like, I'm not sure what his first name is. Paul Bunyan's the, the giant guy with the axe, right? <laughs> and John Bunyan's the guy that wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Anyway, uh, the animation, what I've seen, um, I'm kind of hoping it's not representative of the final product because I'm, I don't know, it, it, it looks better than something you'd see from VeggieTales, and they really came a long way in that series, but it's not something that I would compare to, say, Pixar. Maybe that's unfair to me to expect that. Um, so I, I, but I think it could still turn out really well and still be worthy of of putting in theaters but right now there's parts of it that i'm like uh the quality seems a little direct to video uh, right now but um what's interesting to me also uh is the focus of the of the project there's a lot if you go to the website at revelationmedia.com uh and look at the page for the pilgrim's progress at revelationmedia.com there's a lot of talk about this in terms of it uh, being ministry. Um, I mean, they're also, let's see here. Um, there's all, they're also talking it up in a way that I'm like, Ugh, I don't know if that's the best language to use, um, calling it like uh, cutting edge. Um, one of the greatest books ever written is coming to life like never before in CGI animation. Um, the story of the Pilgrim's Progress was, Progress was written over 300 years ago and has been on an unbelievable journey. Written by John Bunyan while in prison. There it is, John. Uh, smuggled to the underground church during Soviet communism, banned for a time in China, and sold more copies than any book except the Bible. The journey of this remarkable work continues as it comes to an all-new generation in a cutting-edge animated film. And I... I I don't like that wording because uh, I don't think it's representative of what the product is. If you watch the trailer, um, I guess if you just in general mean that CGI is cutting edge, well, I don't know. It's not these days. Um, and, but I don't think the quality that I'm seeing here could be described as cutting edge. I think there are some wonderful things you could say about this, some great adjectives, complimentary adjectives you could use. I wouldn't use cutting edge. Um, 
But anyway, they go on to talk about this this as a, as a ministry. It's a desire of Revelation Media to translate the film into the world's top 100 languages, reaching the front lines of missions around the globe. Commitments have already been made to fund no less than 20 key languages, and additional fundraising will be sought to bring this film to all corners of the earth. As a Revelation Media co-production, The Pilgrim's Progress will be free to the, in- to the international missions community to evangelize and encourage the nations. At Revelation Media, we are on a mission to empower every parent, every pastor, and every frontline worker with relevant kingdom-minded media. Um, and then they've got one more paragraph at the bottom here uh, with a big title saying, Communist China is hungry for the Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, From the quality of animation to the anointed power of the story, this film has the ability to reach the people of China like never before. In a culture of extreme censorship, the story of the Pilgrim's Progress has ironically been embraced by Chinese officials. The 300-year-old book by John Bunyan is taught in English literature classes throughout China and is accepted reading material in schools and libraries. Imagine the impact this film will have in the communist country of China. Whether distributed through the underground church or legally in theaters, the classic allegory of the Pilgrim's Progress will continue to point viewers toward Christ the King. Um, And then they've got a little quote there from a man named Pastor Zhao uh, saying, we need the Pilgrim's Progress now. It will impact China like no other film. So there's a lot on this page that's talking about the work not uh, not merely in it, it being, you know, entertainment with great themes and providing possible teaching moments. They're really pushing this conceptually as an evangelism tool. And I think perhaps that is um, actually a good thing for them to be doing um, on the, you know, at least on their on their page here. Because it just kind of lets you know what this thing is for, you know, for those who are interested in evangelism in places, in cultures where this will be, uh, where this will be received positively um, to present it as a tool. Okay, I think that's great. Um, But I think that American audiences, American mainstream audiences, I don't know if they're going to respond to this well, you know, Um, and... So I, part of me even wonders, I mean, do you want to get it into mainstream theaters? Or how are they going to market it to an American audience or just to a mainstream audience? That's what I'm really wondering about. Um, so all the talk here about it being missional, I'm wondering, um, do they have their ducks in a row as far as the, the quality of the animation, the quality of the voice acting? Um, I'm not seeing any huge red flags, you know, but uh, in, in, the, in like the trailer... But the script, how it all plays out, how much of the allegory they hang on to and how much they reinvent it, it looks like it's going for very much a children's kind of vibe. So, you know, if they're going to be really simplifying it uh, conceptually, I can imagine a lot of the uh, problematic theology of Bunyan being dropped and left on the wayside anyway, along with some of his good theology being dropped uh, to the wayside because they're just not going for that kind of complexity and it's going to be more of a children's type of thing. And if it's being, if the focus is, hey, let's get this in a hundred different languages so we can get it all over the place, then it sounds like, you know, a lot of their audience is not mainstream America, you know, Um, but it's maybe some of the, uh, some of the poorer 
countries in the world that you know aren't as exposed to as much you know entertainment media and so they're not going to be as critical and stuff like that it reminds me a little bit of wasn't there something a long time ago called like the jesus movie or something like back in the 70s i want to say that like was really powerful as a ministry tool it was translated you know like redubbed into like a ton of different languages and was like circulated like crazy in all these different countries but like i as an american had like barely heard of this thing uh and then when i saw clips of it i I was like, yeah, <laughs> you know. So I think in its proper place, uh, focus on its on the right audience. This animated movie could be like hugely impactful, but I have my doubts based on what I've seen on how much of an impact it's going to have on a typical, you know, American moviegoer. Uh, all right, so that was a lot of time spent on that. Let's move on to one more thing that I found interesting. Um, Reed Benson, uh, whose username is uh, a, a good read. I think he changed it recently on the forums to a good read. But anyway, Reed Benson, a uh, longtime member now of the Christian Geek Central community, pointed out a story to me where uh, apparently DC Comics uh, is taking the Batman character into a slightly new direction and retroactively bringing Christianity into his past, uh, specifically his past as a child. The article called Batman Reveals His Abandoned Faith in Batman Number 53 Exclusive Preview can be found over at inverse.com. Inverse.com. Uh, the story was published on August 14th, 2018. And I won't share the, the article with you. You're, you're encouraged to go and check out that yourself. But what was cool on this page is they also included the relevant uh, pages of art from the comic itself. Uh, and so we've got, the in the opening scene here, Bruce Wayne, I don't know the context, haven't been following Batman comics in a long time, uh, but he's having a conversation with a woman, and uh, let's see here, let me scroll down. Missy, he says, Missy, I noticed, uh, forgive me, the way your blouse folds and the chain. Are you wearing a cross? She says, yes, I am. I believe in God. I've attended my church for 20 years. Is that a problem? He answers, no, never. She says, good. Uh, and then he says, but you've asked me to show here today that Batman could have erred in this case, that his mistakes perhaps led to Freeze being falsely accused. And so I find your cross, your belief, interesting, vital, perhaps. She says, do you believe in God? And there's a bit of a pause. Bruce. And he answers, yes, that's just it. I used to. And he goes on to say, my father was a Christian. He held hallow the immortal soul, heaven, the father and the son, giving your will to your Lord, trusting him with that will. He wanted me to believe too, but he wanted me to come to it on my own. We went to church. He told me all the stories, talked a lot about what we can control, what we can't. Later, after, and they're showing scenes of uh, Bruce kneeling over his uh, parents' bodies now, I was upset. I put aside believing in a deity or believing in anything my father thought had saved him. I couldn't, I couldn't really see that anything uh, had saved him. I left Gotham for a while. I searched for something solid to put my faith in. And it's interesting that at that line, I searched for something solid to put my faith in. The backdrop for that text box is Bruce um, exercising on gymnast rings. And he's in a pose that is absolutely evoking, I think, um, the, uh, the typical images of Jesus on the cross with his arms stretched out to both sides, uh, his body stretched out in a, in a pointed line um, 
uh, horizontally. Uh, he says, I searched for, for something solid to put my faith in. I asked a great deal of questions. I paid for those answers, but I didn't find anything out there. As far as I went, uh, yeah, as, as far as I went. So I came home and I waited for something to find me. And uh, that, then it switches over to him swinging through Gotham as Batman, that presumably indicating that the thing that he was looking for to put faith in was this idea of Batman becoming Batman, basically faith in himself. And this is, I think, a great take on the character. Um, I, I, I'm interested because uh, how are they going to portray this? I've, I've always felt that Batman should never go in the direction of becoming like a Christian or coming to faith. I think at most you want to take a character like him uh, to kind of f flirt with that and get close to it. But Batman, I think, should be a tragic character. I think he's more interesting as a character when he is tragic. Um, and I, But I think that like there's two ways that you can use this background of Christianity as an author. You can use it as part of his background, and like Bruce, you can kind of prop up the idea that, yeah, faith ultimately wasn't practical, it didn't serve any purpose, we ought to believe in ourselves like Batman does, we ought to be like Batman, you know? Um, or you could write the story in such a way that we kind of recognize that Batman is this jaded, tragic figure, and you could instead prop up his parents as these sort of like examples of virtue and wisdom and what is right, you know, in a similar way to uh, how uh, um, Jonathan and Martha Kent are propped up as, uh, as Superman's parents, these sources of, of wisdom. So, But it's really going to depend on what the author chooses to do with uh, Bruce's parents because, you know, you can make the argument, well, they had faith in God, but they ended up getting killed, so where was God and all of that, you know, and stuff, which is an understandable question to wrestle with. So they could really go, depending on the author, either way in how they're going to treat Christianity. But um, I find it very interesting that uh, they specifically say Christian. Um, you know, they... Uh, yeah, that's as as opposed to Catholic or leaning on uh, Catholic imagery and stuff. You know, that's just broad um, broad Christianity. Very interesting. Very interesting. Anyway, um, so if uh, if anybody wants to keep track of that and let me know kind of where that evolves, if if anywhere, uh, I'd be very interested to know. This writer is also known. Where was it? I can't remember now. But he's also known for writing a very faith oriented Green Lantern story, uh, which I'm as a big Green Lantern fan, kind of tempted to check out at some point. But I haven't done that yet. Anyway, um, so yeah, I just wanted to report on that. I have no idea where the author's last name is King. Tom King? I can't remember if that's his first name. But anyway, um, yeah, Tom King. Um, I don't know his background. I know that he has some uh, some university training in philosophy, uh, but you know who knows where he's coming from personally. Um, so that would be interesting to kind of get to the bottom of and see if we could figure out, you know, peek into his diary and, <laughs> and see maybe where he's coming from. But uh, anyway, wanted to share that, that with you. Um, and that's all. That's all that I've rounded up for the Christian Geek Radar uh, this, this time around. Feedback, feedback. Give me your thoughts on this podcast, Christian Geek Central, the YouTube channel. Can any of you guys say this part with me yet? Uh, this one, like, I'm, I'm trying to think of the last time I adjusted the script for this section. I'm curious if it is. Give it a shot. Let's see. And then we'll just have, like, an honor system type thing, and I'll give you, like, thumbs up on the forums or something. <laughs> I don't know. I'll give you some kind of no prize. If you based on the honor system, can say all of this with me until we get all the way through to my the end of my email address. You ready? Okay, here we go.
Feedback, feedback. Give me your thoughts on this podcast, Christian Geek Central, the YouTube channel, or anything else we're doing. What should we keep? What should we change? Or what's on your mind you'd like a potentially uninformed opinion on? We want to make this show and all of Christian Geek Central as fun and useful as we can, but we have to hear from you to do that. You can send an email or audio file recorded on your phone to P-A-E-T-E-R at spiritblade.com. And if you stumbled a little bit or accidentally inserted... Um, I've got one of those after the phrase potentially uninformed opinion, then that's okay. You still, you didn't lose any points there. Cause I, I do throw that in fairly, uh, frequently. So let me know how you did. <laughs> All right. Um, well, as a reminder, guys, if you'd like some help finding a, a good church in your area, I want to help you if I can do that. Online resources and communities are a good supplement, but by nature they cannot speak to your particular situation like relationships in a local church can. The context for almost everything in the New Testament assumes that we are serving and building purposeful relationships in a local church. So whether you're in a church that just kind of lacks Bible-based intentionality or you're not attending any church at all, if I can help you get connected to an authentic Bible-oriented church, I want to do that. Uh, Email me at P-A-E-T-E-R at spiritblade.com and we can try to look at some websites of churches in your area together. Well, I want to thank Matt McKinney for that Trek Talk segment. Thank you very much for that, Matt. Stay tuned for more of Matt in the form of DS9 shawarma after the credits or you can jump back to episode 400 if you want to start that series from the very beginning. As a reminder, you can find episodes 0 through 500 of this podcast archived as the Spirit Blade Underground Podcast at spiritblade.com. Next week, if God allows it anyway, I'll share another installment of my Essential Issues series, looking at my favorite comics from DC's publishing history, talking about why I love them and what they have to say, if anything, about the essential issues in life. See what I'm doing there? It's like a little, like a double meaning. That's that's uh, really clever of me. I don't know if you thought it was clever. I'm, but I'll just let you know it's quite quite clever. This time, uh, I'll be talking about what I think is the essential introduction to Batman and his origin story. And that was a tough... This is a tough pick. A tough pick. Because I would, I would want to differentiate between what is the most definitive Batman story and what is the, like, to me, the most definitive, essential introduction to Batman and his origin story. And, I, and in this case, I do not think that it's the same thing the same comic um so i'm going to be focusing specifically on what i think is the essential introduction to batman as a character and his his origins um i'll also be sharing my thoughts next week hopefully on dragon quest 11 for the playstation 4 really looking forward to that game um but i'm also harboring some reservations about it uh i'll share what will likely be some mixed feelings about that game next week and finally i plan to feature the next part of my conversation with john wilkerson as we talk through the book of proverbs uh i'm sorry for those of you that like tune in especially for the in search of truth segment because it's been inconsistently a part of the podcast on and off just because there's been other things and stuff going on that uh, needed to temporarily uh take that slot so uh but i am looking forward to getting us back on track with uh, the conversation that John Wilkerson and I have been sharing about Proverbs. Uh, Anyway, till then, please consider supporting the work of Christian Geek Central and Spirit Blade Productions and earning some fun rewards by becoming a Spirit Blade Insider of any subscription.
subscription tier at patreon.com slash spiritbladeproductions. You can also help this work by leaving a positive review of the Christian Geek Central podcast on iTunes or other podcast services. Just one or two sentences is all it takes, and it's a great way to help us grow and offer more content to more people. Thanks so much for making time for this show, guys. I hope you have a great week, and that you'll join me next time here on the Christian Geek Central podcast as we continue to geek out and seek the truth. I feel like my voice is... I don't know if it's the EQ that's a little bit different, or maybe my voice is just a little bit fatigued. It's I feel just a little like I have a little bit more on the low end going on. Hmm, just just a touch. Not quite Batman voice. You'll have to stay tuned for Extra Life this year, late at night, to hear more of my Batman voice. <laughs> The Christian Geek Central Podcast is a community-supported endeavor of Spirit Blade Productions. This podcast is produced by Peter Fremson with support from the Christian Geek Central community at ChristianGeekCentral.com. For information about the latest entertainment and resources from Spirit Blade Productions, visit SpiritBlade.com. Thank you for listening. The Dominion has endured for 2,000 years and will continue to endure long after the Federation has crumbled into dust. Five years ago, no one had ever heard of Bejor or Deep Space Nine, and now all our hopes rest here. And that was In the Cards, also known as Jake Sisko is a douche. Oh, man. <coughs> Want to start it off? The episode, be- <coughs> Excuse me. the episode begins when everyone is in a funk because uh, troubles with the Dominion is getting worse. Ships are disappearing. War is imminent. Um, you know, everything's in a bad place. And Jake is upset because his dad is upset. Because as we've established, Jake has almost no personality beyond his father. Everything in his life has to revolve around his father. So, he finds out there's going to be a auction at Quark's, and among those things, a bunch of other junk, which I still wonder, could this be from Kivos Faja in Next Generation, who collected all sorts of weird things, including at least one human baseball card? It's off the subject, but, you know, just, you know how it is when nerds want to connect the dots. But he finds out there's a Willie Mays baseball card. Cisco's a huge fan of baseball, ergo he wants to get it for his dad. Oh, fine and good, except for humans don't have money. Now, Kim and I had a long discussion, and it does not make sense that they don't have any money at all, because they they have economic interactions with other people who aren't in the Federation, like Quark and Garrick. So, we don't know how it works, but I think the gist of this episode was largely to poke holes in Gene Ronberry's idiotic, the Federation doesn't do money because money is modern American and therefore bad thinking and it just points out how so they spend the whole episode doing odd jobs for people to get things to trade because someone else buys the card and he he's a harmless nut burger who has a weird idea that you will never die if your cells are entertained so he's trying to create a cellular entertainment pod honestly it kind of sounds like something you see in Farscape one of the weird scientists there oh entertain your cells but so all this is going on and, you know, and 
The thing is, every time it starts getting interesting, Jake acts like a douche. Uh, the, okay, he first he tries to guilt Nog into spending all his money on this card. But then when the auction goes beyond the money Nog has, Nog makes other suggestions. Jake says, they're stupid. And then they find this other guy. And so Nog and Jake's... Nog is the one who comes up with the idea of let's do jobs for people to get the things that this guy wants, the various parts and chemicals and various things. Uh, and the, but then every time Nog's doing something that's getting in the way of Jake, Jake yells at Nog. Well, um, and Nog's coming up with all the good ideas. Yeah, and he's he's doing at least half the work, probably the more than half. The only idea that Jake comes up with in this whole thing is let's get my dad a baseball card. Nog is purely the practical how do we do that man. And yet every time anything gets in the way, he just yells at Nog and treats him like garbage. Well, and Jake seems utterly flabbergasted by these ideas that Nog is coming up with. with the idea Give someone of, an incentive to help us? Why yeah. not? Because, and and the, the reason this gets difficult is because Jake absolutely insists this has to be a surprise. Because Cisco won't like this rare baseball card if he knows it's coming. Well, and I don't understand why and Nog doesn't make this argument... Because it would solve the problem. I don't understand why Cisco doesn't say to the station crew that he's doing odd jobs for, why he doesn't say, I want to do this for my dad, but please don't tell him it's a surprise. Dax is the only one who's not, not reliable. That? Dax is the only one that you wouldn't be able to trust that wouldn't blab it because she's a gossip. Everyone else, yeah. It'd be, well, it'd be just like going, the brains of a rodent. Well, they don't go to Lita. Yeah. Lita also has nothing to offer. Well, at least not to what they need. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, because it's just like going to someone asking for money to help with their base with the birthday surprise or something. It's just it's the same idea, and all they have to do is say, Chief O'Brien, can we get such and such from you? Uh, it's to help the commander. Oh yeah, sure. There, done. Nope, we got to do wacky antics. And in the middle of all this, it's a weird thing where it's a comedy main plot, but the subplot is serious. The subplot is the Dominion comes in, Wei Yun and a couple Jemadar, to negotiate with uh, Kai Win. And we find out later she's acting on behalf of First Minister Shakar. Because we will never see Shakar again. He'll only be referred to, even though he's the head of the whole government. Which is always weird to me. I guess they couldn't get Duncan Rager back again. But, uh, and so, and what I liked is uh, her plot is interesting because if you remember early on, Wynn was like, she was a flat-out villain. I mean, she was masterminding bombings of schools and just doing political maneuverings and sneaky stuff. She was like Palpatine without the charm. Um, and now, probably since the time when Sisko found the Lost City and proved that he was the emissary and did all these things, she is very, she doesn't know what to make, as she said in that, and they're consistent she no longer sees him as a full-on enemy. She actually comes and asks him for his advice. She believes that he's genuinely sent by the prophets. And it's sincere. She actually yeah. wants his advice. And his advice is basically to stall because the Dominion offers to uh, put them in a non-aggression treaty. In other words, because if... And again, I love this political stuff. I love the consequences. If you remember the episode when Cisco was getting visions, he said under, under the influence of these visions... Bajor must not join the Federation, quote-unquote, Bajor needs to stand alone. Because he saw the Locust Plague coming and all that. Obviously, it was the, the Dominion spreading out. And so now, and she rightly calls him on it, it's like, you told us we need to stand alone. So here we are alone, and now you're going to tell us don't, don't join up with the Dominion? 
It's like, if they're going to conquer us anyway, we might as well sign the treaty so they'll conquer us without bombing us first. If they're going to win anyway. So he tells her to stall, but this is, this is going to come up in the next episode as well, the non-aggression treaty. So it is an important thing to set up, as well as just the mood of the thing, which is this unstoppable juggernaut of military might is coming our way. Yeah, and we, one way or another, you have to deal with it. We were discussing before we turned this episode on about how DS9 is kind of like a giant three-act structure over the whole show. Yeah, and, and this is the start of Act 3 next episode. This is, this is kind of like the overture to tell you to sit down for Act 3, giving you a little something light and fluffy with your popcorn before we dive into the real climax and serious business. This is kind of like in Lord of the Rings, the movies. This is like when they all had their party in uh, Edoras right before everyone split in their own yeah, direction. Yeah, hobbits dancing on tables, tipsy yeah. dwarf antics, yeah, it's, before we go off to the real bad, serious war. Because that's the next episode. And next episode is the start of the seven-part, what I call Deep Space Nine, the movie, and definitely be on board with that. But so this episode... It's an okay comedy episode. It's it's certainly not Star Trek's best, but it's certainly not... It's dragged down, down by the stupid Orthodox Roddenberryanism. Yeah. Well, except for, again, I, I think this episode is trying to make fun of that. And I do appreciate that. It's tr it's poking the holes in the idea that it... Because the Federation obviously does not... Is not able to provide its own needs. As SF Debris pointed out... Uh, the first, like, three or four episodes of Star Trek, there was only one episode that wasn't about negotiating with aliens to get things from them, one way or another. Well, and clearly, at least some of the crew on DS9 have some kind of stipend. Or yeah, some credit account or something. Because there's no way that Cork gives away his holosuite time for free. No, that, it's, his, no it's a business model. That when Cisco orders a new suit from Garrick, Garrett just does it out of the goodness of his heart. Yeah, and these people are not in the Federation. And so none of it holds together. And this episode kind of shows the holes in that. And it shows that all those claims about no money is, at best, if you take it literally, just means we're cashless. Not that we don't have an economy. Not that we're literally the, the communist paradise that people want to claim it is, where everyone gets everything for free and no one has, what a lot of leftist politicians just want the world to magically be. Because you know what? The, the world will magically be that if there's never a limit. But as this episode shows, there's a value on something because it's rare. Well, if something is more valuable because it's rare, even if you can replicate that card, it's not going to be as valuable. Therefore, you still want something you can't replicate. Even if the science is there to completely replicate it and get an exact copy, somehow it's not going to be as good. Well, and on the flip side, there are things that no one would do out yeah. of the goodness of their heart or for the betterment of their people. No one's going to mop up puke because they feel like it should be done. For the betterment of mankind. Yeah. Even though it would better mankind because mankind is not slipping on puke. But, again, and that's... You gotta pay them to deal with that. And I, I, I almost wish this was more of a serious episode because then they could actually go into that a bit instead of you reading between the lines. But still, I do think that was intended to... Because Deep Space Nine is a show most willing to challenge a lot of the stupidity of Star Trek while embracing the strengths of the show. And in my opinion, that's why it's the best Star Trek. It has all the strengths of the great uh, original series, Next Generation, even the better Voyager episodes, but it, it sheds a lot of the weaknesses because it wasn't bound by the, the hidebound old guard uh, Roddenberry and then Berman, his, his successor, 
they were run, they were running the mainline Orthodox Church of Roddenberryism, if you will. Uh, and DS, Deep Space Nine got to be a little splinter movement. It was the reformed Star Trek, if you will. And I think it was far better for that. And this episode's a good example, even though it's a largely forgettable episode. And it's way overshadowed by what's about to come next time. Which, we'll see what happens next time. With Call to Arms. See you then.